You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Esther 2.19-3.15 Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bighan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded at the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found it to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Hanan the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that, that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it, is, as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 30th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples in his own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, to kill and to annihilate Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paul. Well, recently I watched a movie called Conspiracy. It centers around a conference, a kind of business conference, an upmarket work retreat. And so everything looks uh, all business-like and professional. Everyone's wearing suits and ties. There's a, there's a name tag for all the delegates and lovely folders with papers and embossed logos on them. The place where they're meeting is this beautiful uh, hotel, a big old mansion with high ceilings and chandeliers and well-manicured gardens and and waiters rushing around, making sure everything is right, making sure all of the the knives and forks are laid out perfectly. It's all very nice, very genteel, very respectable. Except that this conference is surely one of the most horrific conferences ever hosted because it was at this conference that the Nazis settled on their final solution, their strategy to exterminate the Jews. Adolf Hitler, of course, hated the Jews. In an interview from 1922, a decade before he came to power, he explained that as soon as he got power, my first and foremost task will be the annihilation of the Jews. As soon as I have the power to do so, I'll have gallows built in rows and then the Jews will be hanged indiscriminately until all of Germany has been completely cleansed of Jews. It was clear then what he thought, but it was still a long time before he could enact his policies and his philosophy. But this conference was a crucial moment in doing so. Now, any meeting to discuss such a project would be so incredibly evil, but there's there's something about the way they discuss it which makes it seem even more diabolical. See, this meeting was held in secret, but we know what happened because they took a transcription of it. They transcribed it and took minutes, basically, as if there was just a standard board meeting with motions and seconders and so on. There's this horrific kind of sheen of bureaucracy around the whole process. Colin Firth plays the part of Dr. Wilhelm Stuckart, a lawyer who had developed the laws restricting Jews in Germany. In this movie, he seems relatively compassionate as the discussion progresses. He thinks the Jews should just be sterilised to stop them having children, to bleed them out slowly. So he worries that if they kill them, then they'll win the sympathy of the civilised world. But he also wants to make sure all of this is done legally and so there's this long discussion about how you define a Jew. Is it someone who has two Jewish parents or just one? Or what about their grandparents and so on? Eventually they come up with a satisfactory definition and then they go and have a feast. In fact, the food is one of the, almost one of the characters in this movie. Every couple of hours the waiters are, are bringing in caviar and claret and at the end of it all the delegates make sure to fill up before they head out to put their demonic scheme into practice. It's a profoundly unsettling movie, and I thought about this movie as I was reading Esther chapter 3. You see, in today's passage, we read about another attempt to exterminate the Jews. In in Esther 3, an edict goes out from the Persian court with instructions to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. And just like in Hitler's Germany, it's all done with a surreal and monstrous attention to detail. There's a, it's a decree, it's written up, a date is chosen, it's popped in the calendar, 
notices are sent out, making sure that everyone can make their plans. And at the end of all, end of it all, the two main characters, the mastermind and the king, go and have a feast. Esther 3 is, I think, one of the most confronting passages in Scripture, one of the most scary and intimidating passages for God's people. And so I think it's important that we engage with it today to really feel the horrific reality of what's going on here and then try to understand what it would have been like for the Jews back then, but also to think about what it could mean for us and what it is saying for us. First of all, let's set the scene, a bit of context from chapter the end of chapter 2. Last week we met one of the main characters in this book, a Jewish guy called Mordecai. We saw that he was an official in the royal court of the Persian king Ahasuerus. He was also looking after his cousin Esther, who would have been destitute if he hadn't looked after her. She was an orphan. Now, Esther, of course, was now living in the palace as the queen, and every day Mordecai would visit her to make sure she was okay. And it seems that one day as he was visiting her, he's in the palace grounds, he hears some whispering about a plot to kill the king. As we've seen, Ahasuerus is a real piece of work, but uh, Mordecai is a man of honour, and so as soon as he hears about this treachery, he informs Esther, who then informs the king, and he saves the king's life. This is all very noble and honourable, so you'd think that Mordecai would be honoured for this, but actually the next thing we read is that someone else is getting honoured. True that it's recorded in the book of the Chronicles in verse 23 of the king, but somehow it all gets lost in the paperwork. And the next thing we read is that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Not told how long after these things it happened. Some commentators think it might be a number of years, but the timing isn't the point. The point is that Mordecai should have been on it, but wasn't. He was overlooked, and this other guy, Haman, was on it. And it's time now for us to meet the great villain of the book of Esther. Uh, do you know, when the book of Esther was first written and it was uh, told to Jews uh, and, and read out, uh, the kids were encouraged to boo and hiss every time they heard the word Haman. So feel free to do that if you want today. This is the bad guy. This is Darth Vader. This is Voldemort. He's a hateful, murderous man. He's, his name actually sounds like the Hebrew word for wrath and that suits him because his wrath is always just, uh, just underneath the surface. He's a very fragile ego and anything can rile him up and we'll see that as the story goes on. And yet the king favours him. Ahasuerus honours him above all the other officials. He's made second only to the king himself. And and don't miss this. He he is the second most powerful person in the world. He's the second most powerful person to Ahasuerus, who is the most powerful person in the world. So this is a man with incredible power. Ahasuerus honours him. He wants everyone else to as well. Verse 2, all the king's servants who are at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. Turns out, though, that Mordecai is not having it. He refuses to pay homage to Haman. Now, we don't know why exactly. My first thought was perhaps because uh, Mordecai is a Jew. He says that in verse 5, it's because I'm a Jew, I'm not going to do this. Perhaps there's some sort of religious reason. He doesn't want to pay homage. The Jews believe in one God and only worship to him. So perhaps he doesn't want to, this would be seen as an act of worship, except it doesn't really make sense because most commentators agree that paying homage here is really just like you would bow or curtsy before the king or something like that. So there's probably some other reason. And I think the most convincing reason is is that it's got something to do with the family histories of these two men, of Mordecai and Haman. 
See, when we met Mordecai last week, we were told that he was the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. That means that he was really from the lineage of Saul, the very first king of Israel. And now when we meet Haman, we're told that he is an Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. That means that he's from uh, the royal line of a guy called King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. So actually what's happening here is there is a, a rekindling of an ancient rivalry. Let me explain. The Amalekites, you see, were the very first people to set themselves against God's people. In Deuteronomy 25, as God's people are coming up out of Egypt in the Exodus, uh, the Amalekites swoop in and attack uh, uh, the most vulnerable people at the end of their column of of, uh, people, the weak and the young and the vulnerable. God demanded justice for this war crime. So he instructed his people to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In fact, in Exodus 17, he tells Moses, the Lord will have, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And things would come to a head in the time of King Saul. 1 Samuel 15, he goes up to battle against the Amalekites and he has the opportunity to punish King Agag. He's instructed by God to execute him, but Saul holds back. And I think this encounter is really uh, the background to what happens with Haman and Mordecai. See, they, they almost should be enemies. It's in their blood. It's in their genes. When Haman sees Mordecai, he doesn't just see another pumped-up Persian. He sees an Amalekite in the line of King Agag, someone who has been God's enemy for generation after generation. And he sees he refuses to pay homage to this kind of person. He will not bow down before one of God's enemies. Well, if that was his plan, it seems to backfire rather badly. At first, Haman doesn't even notice Mordecai's behaviour. Some of the other court officials dub him in and Haman is filled with fury, which is pretty telling, I think. I mean, here is a man who has incredible power and the homage of everyone, but if one person refused to bow down before him, it doesn't feel like anything. If he can't have everything, it feels like nothing. He's like King Ahasuerus, of course, the other character in this book who is captive to his ego and his passions. But there's actually some differences between the two, which I think make Haman even more dangerous. You see, when Ahasuerus was slighted, he turned all of his wrath against one person, Vashti, his wife. Haman, however, goes much further. After finding out that Mordecai is a Jew, we're told that he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone and sought instead to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. He can't stop at one. And then there's something really chilling about the way he goes about it. When Ahasuerus gets angry, he just flies off the handle. He acts straight away impetuously and banishes his wife. But when Haman gets angry... He holds his anger and he nurses it. We're told in verse 7 that he sort of uh, throws out the purr, which is basically like rolling dice. He's casting lots. He's trying to work out when is the best time to kill all of these people. Look, it's, it's like he's checking his horoscope to check a, look for a day that has good omens. Like it, it's chilling, isn't it? And this shows that this is an anger that won't just pass. This is not based just on a whim or a passion. This is a settled anger. This is not, uh, this is, this is psychotic, really. But still he has to find a way to make it all happen. Really, he has to get the king on side. And so you notice from verse 8 how he approaches Ahasuerus. Doesn't come straight out with it. He just doesn't identify who he's after. There's just a, a certain people. 
Then he couches it in terms that the king will understand. First, he says that the Jews are a threat to the law and order and the authority of Ahasuerus. Their, their laws are different from those of every other people. They don't keep the king's laws. It's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. He's appealing to the king's ego, isn't he? Like, you don't want to have these people who aren't fully respecting you. And if pride is not powerful enough a motive, then he appeals to the king's greed. He offers to pay 10,000 talents of silver. Now, this is an astronomical amount. It's basically 300 tonnes of silver. It's equivalent to two-thirds the annual tax income that the king would get from his vast empire. <laughs> this is a guy who is committed. This is a guy who hates the Jews, cannot tolerate them, wants desperately to kill them, and is willing to pay for the opportunity to do so. So this isn't just political, this is personal. And the king, this great buffoon, just goes along with it. You'll notice that he doesn't even ask who the people are. Haman just says there's a certain people. He doesn't question, he doesn't find out, doesn't explore who that, those people are. He just gives Haman the authority to do it. He gives him his signet ring, the sign of his authority, gives him the men to do it, and then a message is sent out right across this vast empire of 127 provinces setting the date for slaughter. The writer tells us that as the king and Haman sit down to feast, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And you can well imagine it. A dark shadow has descended over the Jews with, with a stroke of a pen. Their future has been taken away and this death sentence lies over them, all of them, young and old, women and children, in every province. This is a dark, dark day for the Jews. But tragically, it's not the only one like it. See, Haman and Hitler are not alone. Haman, we're told, was an enemy of the Jews. We know that Hitler was. And there have been enemies of the Jews throughout all of history. And many attempts have been made to destroy and annihilate the Jews. The Holocaust was the most comprehensive the Nazis killed some 6 million Jews, almost every single Jew who lived in Poland. But there have been other genocides and other pogroms, like the Spanish expulsion of the 1490s, where Jews were given three options to either convert, to leave, or be burned at the stake. Most recently, of course, there was the attack on Israel on October 7th last year. Uh, Hamas terrorists flooded into Israel on motorbikes and paragliders and on foot, uh, killing more than 1,100 Israelis and taking another 250 hostage. It was a truly horrific event, but, but perhaps actually what's been most concerning since then has been the explosion of anti-Semitism in the so-called tolerant and multicultural West. So America's Anti-Defamation League reported a 337% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the two months after that. The Executive Council of Australian Jewry reported an even higher jump, 591%. Now, of course, you might argue that some of this is just an expression of opposition to Jewish policies in Palestine. But I think that would ignore some of the dynamics at play here. You see, normally when there's a big terrorist attack, there is an outpouring of sympathy for the victims. If you remember 9-11, that's what happened. Everyone got the beh behind the Americans. Even Vladimir Putin offered his support. 
But that's not what happened after the October 7 attacks. On October the 8th, before Israel had responded in any way, uh, a group of 34 uh, student organizations at Harvard put their names to a statement condemning Israel before they'd even responded, saying that they held the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence before they'd done anything. On October the 10th, the Chicago chapter of Black Lives Matter tweeted their support for Palestine with a, a cartoon image of a paraglider celebrating the terrorists and taunting their victims. Since then, rallies in major cities throughout the world have repeated the slogan from the river to the sea, which, is, which basically articulates the desire to wipe Israel off the map. Now, can you imagine something like this happening after 9-11? Can you imagine uh, every Sunday at the moment, for instance, there are massive protests at the State Library against uh, pro-Palestine and, and against Israel. Can you imagine if there had been rallies after 9-11 in favour of Osama bin Laden or al-Qaeda? Perhaps the, the most troubling response has come from the United Nations. Three weeks after the attack, the UN were asked to affirm a resolution condemning the terrorist attacks by Hamas. Note the language. They're not being asked to condemn the Palestinians or to affirm Israel's right to defend themselves, nothing like that. They're just being asked to condemn the terrorist attacks, you know, the, the people who gunned down civilians in their homes. But they wouldn't do it. The resolution didn't get the support it needed. When you watch the video, people applaud when it's defeated. So I don't think this is just political. It's personal. Of course you can question Israel's policies. Of course that's fine. But there is something at, at work here that feels different, that feels personal. It's a hatred of the Jews. It's anti-Semitism. It's the world's longest hatred, as people say. And how does this happen? How, how is anti-Semitism still a thing? So it doesn't even make sense on a rational basis. The Jewish writer Alan Dershowitz observes that Jews are, often, are both looked down at with disdain and looked up to with envy. They're looked down on because they're seen as not working the land or producing wealth. Well, at the same time, they're seen as part of this international conspiracy of wealth and power. How are the two things true? Or as another writer says, Jews were hated for 2,000 years because they didn't have their own land and now they're hated because they do have one. So there's something irrational about this, which, which makes me think that there must be something spiritual about it. You see, there's only one other group of people that has inspired such random and repeated and irrational hatred throughout history, and that is Christians. Think about it. Christians have been hated and hunted down in every age, whether it was the Romans feeding them to the lions or whether it was the, the Japanese samurai slaughtering priests in the 17th century or the, the Islamists today or Boko Haram or ISIS. But why? Why is there this set hatred against Christians. I mean, I know we're not perfect, but generally we're fairly nice. And Christians have tended to have a great, be a great blessing to the communities that they're in. I mean, it was Christians who nursed the sick during the many plagues of Rome. It was Christians who overthrew the slave trade in Europe in the 1800s. There's a reason that the world's largest humanitarian aid organisation, the Red Cross, has a cross as its symbol. It's because it was started by Christians. It was 
Christians doing positive things in the world. So, so why are God's people hunted and hated? Well, it's because it's spiritual. There is a fixed spiritual opposition to God's people and enmity that I think can be traced all the way through human history and actually links Jews and Christians. Now, there's a bit of theology we need to do here to kind of unpack this. In doing so, I want to tell you about the great storyline that runs through the Bible and human history, the, the conflict between good and evil, between God and the devil. The Bible makes it clear that humanity was made to live with God and to fulfill his purposes, to look after his world and, and to bring out all of the goodness that was in the world. And that's, that was the task given to Adam and Eve. It's the one they embraced as they began life in the Garden of Eden. But they weren't alone. There was someone else in the garden, someone else set on subverting and sabotaging God's plans. This was, of course, the devil. And and as he worked his wiles with Adam and Eve, he tempted them to sin against God and to disrupt his work. That's what we see in Genesis 3 as they fall into sin and are exiled from the garden. Now, that could have been the end of the story, but in fact, it's just the beginning. You see, even though humanity had sinned, God purposed in his great mercy to send a saviour to rescue people and to bring them home. And to make this happen, he would bring the saviour into the world. God would come into the world as a human. And to make that possible, God would raise up a people who would then, through that line, would bring the Messiah into the world, carry the child into the world. The people chosen to do this task were the Jews, And this great promise became their great project. It shaped their identity and gave them a sense of purpose in the world. But it also put a target on their head and made them susceptible to the devil's attacks. You see, only if the Saviour was born and fulfilled his mission would salvation be be won for humanity. And so the devil sets himself against the Jews to prevent that. He wants to destroy the Jews so that he can cut off the line to the Messiah and make sure that it never happens. But of course he didn't succeed. As we begin the New Testament, we see that the Messiah did come, that Jesus was born, that God the Saviour did come to the earth and he did his job. But we also see that when he came, things didn't go quite the way you might expect. Yes, he was the Messiah that God had sent for his people, but his people rejected him. John 1.11, he came to his own and his, and his own people did not receive him. But that didn't frustrate God's plans. actually just revealed the breadth of God's plans. See, Jesus hadn't just come for the Jews. He had come to bring life to all nations and all people. And so as the apostle said in Acts 13, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles, and whoever believes in Jesus becomes a child of God. It's no matter about your bloodline or anything like that. It's just a response to Jesus. What does that mean then for the people of the Jews who are Jewish by blood? Well, some people think that it's all over for them, that they no longer have any continuing uh, significance with God. Uh, Now, certainly it's true that God's family is defined by our hearts and not by our generations. Romans 2, for no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, a Jew is one inwardly. It depends on our response to Jesus. And yet I think the Bible also makes it clear that God still has plans for the Jews as a people. 
See, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul suggests that a day is coming where many Jews will believe in Jesus. Romans 11 verse 1, has God rejected his people? By no means. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, verse 28. And so there is this hope of a revival. Verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way all Israel will be saved. There are promises in the Old Testament that God will shine his light and his people will respond. Zechariah 12, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercies so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will see that Jesus is truly the Messiah they were looking for. But I also think that this future hope explains why anti-Semitism remains so prevalent. You see, God's purposes are to bring many Jews to faith in Jesus, and so the devil will try to stop that by exterminating the Jews. The devil always sets himself against God's plans. That means he sets himself against Christians, those who already believe in Jesus, and he sets himself against the Jews, those who will one day believe in Jesus. That's a lot of theological background, but, but what does this passage have to say to us? See, I actually think that this passage has a lot to say for God's people both then and now. I want to pick out three things. The first thing is recognise the battle. So the book of, uh, book of Esther emphasises, I think, the reality of the spiritual conflict that's in the world and around us. There's no mention of God in the book, and we know that God is present, constantly working. There's no mention of the devil either, but I think we can assume that he is also working, and we see that throughout this book. And we need to recognise that. We need to be aware of this, and we need to choose a side. This spiritual conflict continues on, the devil against God, good versus evil, and we must decide if we will stand with God or the devil. Of course, it's not necessarily obvious if you stand with the devil. There's no big ceremony. There's no reverse baptism. You don't sort of just get dry or something. It's far more subtle than that. Ephesians 2 says that Paul describes the devil as the prince of the power of the air and says that he is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so you can see him at work among those who live in the passion of the flesh, Paul says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so actually living for the devil or serving the devil looks basically like just living for yourself, serving yourself serving your own passions and desires, doing whatever you feel is right, defining right for yourself. And that's where the battle comes to us. You see, Christians decide not to just do what they want and to instead do what God wants. A Christian is someone who recognises that they were made to serve God and that going against God is both wrong and unsatisfying. And so they come back to God. They acknowledge their sin. They ask for forgiveness. They, they trust that Jesus has won that forgiveness. And then they resolve to follow him. They call Jesus not just their saviour, but their Lord. But once you start to make those decisions, you start to stick out. I find Haman's description of the Jews really interesting. He says they were a certain people dispersed among the other peoples whose laws are different from those of other people. 
It sounds very like Christians. We're dispersed among the people of our culture and our laws, our way of life is different from everyone else. See, we don't just use our money for ourselves. We, we want to give it away as well. We don't just serve our own lusts. We commit to purity and faithfulness. We don't just tell the truth when it helps us, when it suits us. We tell the truth even when it hurts us. These are different laws. This is a different way to live. It makes us stick out and it makes other people uncomfortable. My wife always remembered when she uh, was a teenager, she used to go to nightclubs a little bit with some of her friends. But then she really took her faith seriously and chose not to do that anymore. So the next time her friends asked her, can you come to the club? She was like, no, I just don't think I want to. And then they started harassing her. It's like, oh, you're judging us. She said, no, no, I'm just, don't want to come. They saw it as if she was judging them just because she was choosing to live different. This is what happens throughout the world. When we choose to live for God rather than for ourselves, other people get frustrated. Why? Because it's almost like we're traitors. There's this great conflict against God, and if you don't go along with it, then you're letting the side down. You're a fly in the ointment. You're, you're, you're the stone in the shoe. You're, you're letting everyone else down. And so we're criticised as fundamentalists or fanatics. We're holding out. People want us to stand with them. So what will you do? Whose side will you choose? See, really, it depends on how you view God. Do you see him as a friend or as an enemy? Do you see Jesus as a good king whose rule will bring life? Or do you see him as this kind of imperial dictator who's taking control of everything? How do you see him? Which side will you choose? That's the first application. The second one is we need to seek the good of the Jews. Uh, as you probably worked out, I'm a massive nerd. And so after the latest uh, war began in the Middle East, I thought, right, I really want to understand exactly how this whole thing works. I've heard about it for years. Everyone says, oh, I just it's too complicated. I can't speak into it because I'm not an expert. So I was like, well, I want to become an expert. So I started reading some books on it, listened to a whole bunch of podcasts about it. There's a whole bunch more that I want to read, but I have learned a lot. So I think I could say I could make a strong case, I think, for Israel's right to have the land of Palestine on both historical and ethical grounds. I'm not so sure, though, if I could make that argument on spiritual grounds. Now, this is a big debate. See, lots of Christians believe that uh, Israel is destined to have the land, that this is God's promises and he will restore their land to them. I can follow the argument. There's a whole bunch of promises in the Old Testament that point towards that. But there's a lot of debate about those promises. Have they already been fulfilled? Are they still to come? I don't know. It's one of those things that I'm really wanting to learn more about and to think through. But either way, I think it misses the point. And the point is, the key point is Jesus. See, if we just focus on the people of Israel, or we focus on the land of Israel, we fall into the trap that the Jews fell into when Jesus came. They were looking for the Messiah, but when he came, they didn't recognise him because they misunderstood what he'd come to do. They were looking for a temporal Messiah who would bless them physically and make them great, save them physically. But Jesus had come to save them spiritually. That's still the greatest need for all people, and it's the greatest need for God's people, the Jews. 
See, when I read the Old Testament, I see just how much God loves the Jews. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They were his people and he loved them and I think he still does. He, they broke his heart again and again and again, but still he loves them. They rejected his promises, but still those promises hold. And so I believe that there will one day be a time where many Jews will come and believe in Jesus. You might think of this as the Luke 24 moment. In Luke 24, the risen Jesus is, is walking along the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. It's Easter Sunday. He's Jesus, but they don't yet realise it. Somehow he's sort of cloaked himself so that they can't recognise him. Anyway, they're walking along and these two guys are talking about what's been happening. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah, but then he got killed and now he's risen again and they don't know how to read this. They're not sure what's going on. And so we're told that Jesus explained it to them. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He helped them see how the Old Testament was pointing to him. And we're told when they saw it, their hearts burned within them with excitement and joy. As you can tell, I wear glasses. And I remember when I first wore glasses, I was in year seven, I was struggling in science class. I couldn't see the whiteboard properly. Everything was fuzzy and indistinct. At the very first moment I put my glasses on, it all became clear. That's what it's going to be like for the Jews. They're reading the Old Testament. They're seeing all of these things that are about their Messiah. They're hearing about Jesus, but they don't see where it leads. But eventually they will. They will get the eyes to see and their hearts will burn once more within them. Tim Keller says that the promises of Romans 11 should make us view Jewish unbelievers with great hope and motivate us to ask, what part might I play in God's wonderful sovereign purposes for his ancient people? That's the second application. The third one is to trust the God who is in control. As Esther chapter 3 closes, there's a whole lot of uncertainty and darkness. There's this deadly decree that's gone out against God's people and they look doomed. And you're asking yourself, can they be saved? Who will save them? Or more specifically, will God save them? What is God doing? Will he step in? Well, of course, last week I highlighted the fact that the, the great mystery of the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned, but he's present. He's always behind the scenes doing his thing. Wallace P. Ben says the name of God might not be mentioned in the book of Esther, but the activity of God is written on every page. And we see it in a couple of places here in Esther 3. The first thing I see is uh, looking at Haman. See, he hates the Jews and his hatred is cold and it's calculating, but it's almost a little too calculating. Did you see how he, he develops his big plan? He, he takes his time. He nurses his hatred. You can tell that he's actually enjoying the hatred. He doesn't want to rush into this. He wants to do it properly. He's fantasizing about this great victory that he's going to have. But the date that he actually chooses is a full 11 months into the future. That's a long time. And it's enough time for things to change for the Jews to escape his clutches. 
So you actually think of Heyman a little bit like a James Bond baddie. You know, like they're in all the movies, they capture James Bond. I can't miss the Bond, I will kill you. And then they take that 15 minutes to explain how they're going to do this and they let him know all of the secrets, the mystery. And in that time, he's worked out some special trick or M has given him some bomb and he works it out and he can get away. Haman is like that. He's giving space for the Jews to escape. The philosopher Peter Kreef says that evil always destroys itself and you see that with Haman. He wants to annihilate them but he leaves space. He overreaches. He goes too far. He wastes his moment. He sabotages himself. And this is always the case. Hitler ended up losing World War II in the snows of Russia, and one of the reasons he lost is because they couldn't supply their troops adequately. Why couldn't they supply their troops? Because they didn't have enough trains. Why didn't they have enough trains? Because they had diverted most of their trains to carrying the Jews to the concentration camps. See, Hitler was so set on destroying the Jews that he destroyed himself. This is always the case with the enemies of God's people. They overreach, they go too far, they sabotage themselves. And God watches. And Psalm 2 says that God laughs. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He's totally in control. And there's another aspect here that I just love. See, the day uh, where the plans, the Haman's plans, are published and publicised is actually the day before Passover. And if you know your Bible history, you'll know that Passover was a very significant moment where God saved his people, the Jews. They were in Egypt and they're uh, enslaved, but God uh, rescues them as long as they uh, did this special method of putting some blood on the doors and God would pass over their house and protect them. And it's so interesting that this new edict against them should come on this time. It's fortuitous, isn't it? It's God's sovereign will. See, as this thing goes out, this decree goes out, and God's people realise that they're doomed, they're reminded of another time where they seemed doomed and God came through and rescued them. The stories, the parallels are so interesting. Pharaoh hated the Jews because he, they were told that the land was filled with them. They were dispersed and scattered through all his nation and so he enslaved them. And in their slavery, God's people called out to God, Exodus 2, they cried for rescue from slavery and it came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That's one of my favourite passages in all of the Bible. This wonderful moment where God heard, God remembered his covenant. God saw the suffering of his people. God knew he entered into it because he cares and then he acts rescuing his people at Passover. And now in Esther 3, God's people face a new test, a new enemy determined to destroy them, but he's the same God, the God who could still hear and see and knew and who still remembered his covenant. And he is still the same God today. There are moments, there are seasons, there are places where it feels like things are very dark for God's people. 
but the same God is still in control. 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He is the one writing the story, and it will end in victory. Victory for us, because it's victory for him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this uh, remarkable story. It's an horrific story. There's so much that's horrible here. And yet even in this darkness, we see glimpses of light. We see that you were in control. We see that you were working your purposes out. We thank you that you are the God who hears, who sees, who cares, who knows, and who acts. We entrust ourselves to you again. And, Lord, as we read this passage, we also want to entrust your original people, the Jews, to you. Lord, uh, it breaks your heart that they do not see Jesus. You sent your Messiah to save them and they rejected him. We thank you, though, Lord, that your love holds, your covenant holds, and there is a day coming where they will see that many will come to know you. Lord, what part might we play in that? Help us to be a people who embrace all people and love those that you have chosen. Uh, Lord, we thank you that your purposes continue on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.